0: We pray for you on a regular basis and we are just so encouraged to see the work of the gospel that is going on in and around Fontana through the ministry of Summit Bible Church. And it's a pleasure and a delight to have you here with us this evening to celebrate Good Friday together. Let me begin by just asking you a question. What does it look like What does it look like when somebody becomes a convert to Christianity? What does that look like? The Scriptures present an answer to that question in many places. But none of them are more clear than the account of the thief on the cross. The account of the thief on the cross. So open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 27. And verse 31, and let me use this section of Scripture to set a context before we go to where we really want to be, which is over in Luke chapter 23. So we'll just set a little context in Matthew 27 and beginning in verse 31. The end of verse thirty one says, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, and they pressed whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, they which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it he was unwilling to drink. When they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. The same way the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now, if he delights in him, for for he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. The Romans placed Jesus in the middle of two other crosses, and they did it for a, a purpose. They had a reason it was a, a way to disgrace him by placing him between those true two convict, convicted robbers and murderers. They were saying that he is part of this whole thing. They could have crucified him off to the side, but, but that would have separated him out. So they lumped him right into the middle. Thus he was identified with all the evil that they had done. The criminals, it says here, Matthew records for us, are are reviling him themselves even while they die. Incredible picture and insight into the hardness of the human heart. Even in the midst of their own torments, they spew out filth and blasphemies. If ever punishment should tame the human heart and and bring it to humility, it would be now. But we don't see any of that. Their hearts are hard. They're unbending like an iron bar. Matthew and Mark record similarly the events that afternoon. Both robbers reviling Christ. But Luke paints a slightly different picture for us. He notices a, a change that comes over one of those robbers. A change that is that is so amazing, so astounding, so unexpected that it vividly portrays the change that occurs in a human heart when one is converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This thief on the cross becomes a disciple of Christ from a sinner to a saint. Go to Luke 23 and let's follow along this amazing transformation. Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39. I'm going to move somewhat quickly through the text. I just have a very simple outline for you. It's just five words. You could write them down if you like. A simple five-word outline of this text, Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39. Here are the words. The first is revile, revile. The next is rebuke. The third is repentance. The fourth is request, and the fifth is redemption. Revile, rebuke, request, repentance, request, and redemption. So let's take a peek at Luke's amazing account here of the conversion of this robber on Good Friday, the day in which he died. Let's start with revile. Verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us hurling abuse at him, it says, blaspheming the Son of God, slandering him, insulting him, mocking him. The man's taunt assumes Christ is not who he claims to be. Are you not the Christ? He says with bitter sarcasm. The irony here is really great, isn't it? And so is the blindness. The righteous one dies while being taunted by the unrighteous. What produces that kind of evil in the human heart? What would cause someone to insult and to ridicule a man who's dying next to you? What produces that kind of Venom in the human heart. I mean, on a purely human level, it's almost unthinkable, isn't it? You're dying, and he's dying too, and yet you use your final breath to blaspheme, to slander, to insult, to mock the one who's dying next to you. Where does that kind of wickedness come from? right out of the human heart. Right out of the human heart. We all know how cruel children can be, don't we? How they can be vicious to one another, name-calling, character assassination, insults, right? exclusion from the group. Six and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. A greater lie was never told, right? Children can be vicious. So can adults. So can adults. But the suffering going on here is is not simple social, being a social outcast, being ostracized by the group. Something infinitely more wicked going on here. They are mocking Jesus For the mission that he came. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And they are mocking him for that very thing. All day long he spread out his hands to a dying world. And the world wanted nothing to do with him. Given the opportunity at his death, they taunted him. They blasphemed him. Beloved, the same thing is true today. Not much has changed. Christian churches all over America are filled with people who would at least nominally agree that Jesus died for their sins. But when you sit down and you have a conversation with someone and you, and you say, if I were to ask you tonight if you were to die and stand before God and he says to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you answer? And all too often those who are members of Christian churches who say that Jesus died for our sins answer that question by saying, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I've done good things. That's why God would let me in. Listen. If your good works will grant you access to heaven, then the death of Jesus Christ is one cruel joke. One barbaric satire. One massive insult. First, revile. Secondly, rebuke. Verse 40, but the other answered, and rebuking him said. This is an amazing transformation to go on here. Mark and Matthew tell us that the two of them together were were piling on the, the blasphemies, the insults. But something has changed. It's not just that one became quiet. One has actually turned now to rebuke his partner in crime. This is an amazing picture. It's a a striking image of the irresistible grace of God on display. How unexpected! How unexpected. This man is on the very edge of death. It it will be a matter of just a few hours and he will be dead. And yet he is transformed. He is transformed. And and in a moment he he achieves forgiveness for all of his sin, all of the accumulated guilt of his soul. He becomes a disciple of, of Jesus Christ and And he will be admitted into heaven before the apostles. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He gets in before they do. Listen, the grace of God shines through every, every nook and cranny of this account here that Luke has for us. Every single crevice is just filled with the grace of God. If there was ever anyone that was unlikely to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, it has to be this guy here, right? He's dying. He's been pouring out abuse, and and then in a moment, something changes. Who would ever imagine it? A violent robber caught in the bonds of death would now become not only a devout follower of Christ, but a a distinguished teacher of what it means to truly repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an incredible display. He says, verse 40, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same Sentence of condemnation. What he's saying, in effect, is: Then the fact that you're about to die cause you to fear God. Is your heart that hard? Has wickedness gripped your soul so strongly? Fear of falling unprepared into the hands of the living God is essential. To true conversion. It's essential to true conversion. One must come to grips with the reality that is appointed unto man to die once, and then comes the judgment. You have to be persuaded of that reality, or conversion will never come. It's one of the reasons I like to speak at funeral services, by the way, Funeral services present a, a unique opportunity in people's lives. We have so sanitized, so sterilized death in our culture. We have put it so far away from us that we don't have to deal with it until we go to a funeral. Then we're sitting there at a funeral and you can't help but, but contemplate your own mortality. There's a box sitting in the front of the room, and inside the box is a dead body. It brings you face to face with the reality, the death. We all have an appointment with death. The result of sin is lying right there. The tragic thing is that most people close their spiritual eyes And never consider the reality. They'll walk up to the open casket, they'll put their hand on the body, they'll feel the cold touch, and they'll turn and walk away. But not this man. Number three, repentance. Verse 41. We are indeed suffering justly, he says. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. We are suffering justly. This man has done nothing wrong. He says that that you and I, we're, we're guilty. We deserve to be on this cross. All of the suffering, all of the torment, all of the anguish is deserved. We're just getting what we deserve. But he has evidently seen or heard something that has persuaded him that that guy who's dying next to him doesn't belong there. That he's not, shouldn't be there. That he has been dragged off to die not through any fault or guilt of his own. Listen, the acknowledgement that one deserves justice, deserves a penalty, is a sign of repentance. It's a sign of the, that the human heart has, has begun to come to grips with the reality of one's sin. It no longer makes excuses. It, it openly and willingly confesses to its own guilt and the resulting consequences. doesn't try to negotiate them. It accepts them, including all of the disgrace that sin deserves and brings. The theologian John Calvin said it this way, The only method of burying them, and he's referring to sin, before God is not to attempt to disguise them before men by vain excuses. Did you get that? The only method of burying them before God is not to attempt to disguise them before men by vain excuses. This is repentance. True repentance makes no excuses. Doesn't equivocate. The prodigal son, a little earlier in Luke's gospel, says it this way Luke 15, verse 18 Father, he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. He's talking to his earthly father. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He doesn't present any defense, no extenuating circumstances. He throws himself upon the mercy of his father. says, I deserve nothing. Make me a slave. Elevate me to the place of a slave. Please. Repentance. Fourth, the request. Verse 42. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. What an amazing confession of faith. Huh. He gets it. The disciples who have been walking with Jesus for three years, they don't. Huh. A criminal. The guy's a criminal. He's not a disciple. He never followed Jesus. Thief? Murder? insurrectionist. I mean, it's likely he's never even heard Jesus preach. Unless he was at the back of the cloud picking pockets. It's amazing. This man's whole life has been consumed by evil and violence, wickedness. And suddenly, he rises to a, to a higher level of spiritual understanding than, than all the disciples who have been walking with Jesus for the last three years. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. What? Bruised? battered, bleeding, life ebbing out from him? He doesn't look like much of a king. Remember me when you come in your kingdom. Where are the marks? Where are the ornaments of royalty? How does this man see a king in this crucified carpenter? What evidence does he have that Jesus could do anything or would do anything for him? There's nothing. Nothing. I mean, the crowd has just been taunting, and and he himself earlier taunting Jesus by saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Then let him come down from the cross, and, and then we'll believe in him. There's no doubt his faith was childlike here. It's not fully developed. It's not a a full systematic theology and understanding of Jesus the Messiah and the coming kingdom, to be sure. But it's real. And it's deep. And it's profound. His insight is profound. It's unlikely the thief understood that Jesus was going to die and and be buried, and then on the third day rise from the dead, right? Probably not likely that he knew about that. Certainly he didn't expect Jesus to redeem him that very day. He doesn't ask for a place of honor. He knows he doesn't deserve one. He just... Casts himself entirely upon the grace of the Savior. And he just simply asked that somehow he might be remembered for good. That's it. Very simple request. What was it about Jesus that, that caused him to be able to see in this broken man the king of Israel? The one who could grant admission into the coming kingdom. Perhaps it was Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Perhaps it was the way Jesus remained calm and and serene even while being reviled by his tormentors. Right, Peter later writes in first Peter two, verse twenty three, and while being reviled he did not revile in return, while suffering he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So so maybe in that he saw something. Perhaps he had just heard about this itinerant rabbi from Galilee. I mean, after all, Jerusalem was in an uproar. So maybe he just heard some things. These would be the human means, perhaps. But they don't really explain what's happening here. There is no human explanation for what has happened. I mean, after all, many have seen these events, right? Many have witnessed his miracles. They have heard his teaching, and yet they don't believe. Thousands upon thousands at one time. They've all turned away. They've all fled. They've all said, give us Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. What do you want me to do with him? Crucify him. Didn't change their mind. Beloved, the only ultimately satisfying answer to the question is that it has to be the work of the Spirit of God. It is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit upon this man's heart that transforms him from a sinner to a saint. And guess what? It's the same Spirit of God that transformed me and has transformed you, if you know Christ tonight, and is the only one who transforms. The only one. Leads us fifth, redemption. Redemption. Revile, rebuke, repentance, request. Fifth, redemption. Verse 43. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. Today you shall be with me in paradise. This word paradise comes from the Persians. It's a word that just comes over from the Persians, and it means a garden, a garden, or a, or a park, what we would call a park today, paradise. Symbolizes a place of incredible beauty, a place of delight. Paul uses the word over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and he identifies it there with heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. I mean, Jesus has not yet made public his triumph over sin and death, right? That doesn't happen until when? Sunday morning, that's the answer. Sunday morning, he makes public his triumph over sin and death. Right? The tomb is empty. And yet still here, for for those who have eyes of faith, the horror of the cross has not deprived him of his majestic glory. Not a bit. Today you will be with me in paradise. He receives the man's request. He, He answers his request without delay. If I can borrow the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20, he answers him, in exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we could ask or think, right? He's just asking, when your kingdom comes, will you just remember me favorably? If If I could just somehow receive just little drops of mercy. And Jesus says, hey, today you're with me in paradise. Be assured. Be assured that Jesus is prepared to admit anyone who comes to him in saving faith. Anyone who will confess their sin, who will repent and turn from their wickedness, who will give up on making excuses and come before God and say, God, I am a guilty sinner. I deserve hell. I throw myself on your mercy. Will you have me for Jesus' sake? Will you count His death as my death? Will you apply His righteousness to my account? The Apostle John, in his Gospel, in John chapter 6, beginning in verse 37, gives us the answer to this question all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. What makes this Good Friday? What's so good about it? Beloved, the answer is that through his sacrificial death he tore open the way to heaven. That any any who will come to him in faith, who will call out to him, he will grant them the same gift he granted that dying thief. Now, that is good news. We serve a great Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he willingly came, that he bore upon his own body the weight of the guilt of all of the sin of his people. That as he hung there in anguish, you, our Father, turning your face from him, as it were, and him being able to say, It is finished. By his death we live. We thank you for the love of Christ who willingly gave himself for us. We pray in his name, amen.